and my sisters Only they can understand It's Joe, and thanks for tuning in to TVO Campfire. What this show's about is about successful veterans, and they're bringing you the stories and their experiences. And we hope that it can provide inspiration to each of you out there, or maybe a veteran that you know to help in their life. Welcome to TVO Campfire. Today, we are absolutely excited to have with us a decorated United States Marine Corps veteran. This Marine was not only a military police, but a gunner and a driver. And he was one of the best in his squad. After serving four, yes, four deployments and two enlistments, he was able to acquire skills and merits that he was able to add to his repertoire that he currently utilizes to help others around him develop new skill sets. When he is not doing that, he is a driver for K2 Logistics, and he, he just really enjoys helping people both on the job and off the job. But despite any type of challenges that he has faced when he sustained injuries while in service, he wants to spend his time focusing on helping veterans with aspirations that he has in becoming a pilot and training veterans at no charge for a nonprofit flight training program that he has envisioned for veterans. So we'd like to welcome him to the show, Brandon Edward Littlefield. Welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. Appreciate being here. We're excited to have you. I'm excited to be here. You have, I mean, just absolutely done so much, and you have such a really good palette of experience that you're utilizing to help others, and yet you're doing it while with challenges that you have faced from all of these different deployments, but I want to just ask you, where are you at originally from? Are you originally from Texas? Yes. Yeah, I was born down there in Webster, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's just been a part of me. Texas is Texas is who I am. After that intro that she just gave you, it, it, <laughs> here's my intro to you. So I met Brandon on the set of uh, I've Got Your Six. Uh, for the, that's actually where I met him. We'd been in contact for quite a bit while. I know him as Dig Dug. <laughs> so, and and that's a that's a story we'll get into later on today. But yeah, yeah. Please tell us a little bit about growing up as a kid, or what you did, um, sports, trouble. <laughs> I can't imagine Dig Dug not getting into trouble growing up. <laughs> yeah, that's that's me. Uh, I mean, I was I was the rambunctious kind. Um, grew up up here in uh, North Texas. I was actually out there at Pecan Gap, and um, so I went to school out there. And man, I was I was all over the field, um, getting into trouble as best I could, and uh, trying to avoid it. 
uh, very little. <laughs> uh, no, I played uh, played baseball, and uh, I tried out for football, and was doing doing okay with that. And you know, then uh, then all of a sudden, this my world changed. So um, I ended up moving out of the out of the state of Texas when I was four years old. And so, I mean, we, we were all over the place, but, uh, growing up was kind of, kind of crazy. I was, uh, as most people would actually acknowledge, you know, the first, first thought that they would have is, oh, you're an army brat or military brat. No, no, I'm not. Uh, I don't have that luxury. Um, so growing up was, a uh, uh, quite a challenge because I, I still had to deal with the uh, the moving around and making new friends. So I was kind of one of those kids that just didn't really need anybody to hang out with to, to enjoy life. And so as I grew up, I just held on to that. Growing up, were you, were you with both your parents growing up? No, actually, uh, my mom, she ended up... Uh, divorcing my real father uh she met uh she met my stepdad and and at that point in time that's when we moved so again i was about four years old and uh you know he was a truck driver and so that's the reason why we were all over the place how did that make you feel you know kind of later on in your life going nah now that i'm bouncing around i'm kind of this this kid that really doesn't have stability you know do, do you find that it was good for you that it it hurt you in ways what you know how do you feel about that well being able to experience that i mean i kind of had an advantage over most kids because you know kids in school they were they were just learning about the states i was actually living in them so um that in it, in and of itself was was a a benefit to me just because i was able to meet different people from abroad while still being in the continental United States and, you know, having that, uh, uh, simple mindset of, Hey, you know, I've been there, I've done that. I've seen that state. It's gorgeous. You know, you guys need to try that. And, and for a kid of that age and, and going up to somebody that is, you know, two, three times my age saying, Hey, have you been out of the, out of the state of Arkansas per se? No, well, Colorado is beautiful. You know, you should try going out there and visiting said said state. So uh, it definitely helped me in the long run, especially joining the military because I was so used to packing up at a moment's notice and just uprooting and, and moving on and then replanting somewhere else. So the transitions were were pretty easy. And, and the reason why I asked that is because we have many vets on even even uh, one still on active duty, right? That really don't understand that's an actual great building block for mm -hmm. to teach children their own children, right? Uh, I like to use the term flu to being fluid. You know that teaches on fluidity, right? But really, it's it's adaptiveness, and that's one of the major major things that can lead to success in an adult's life. If you can teach children how to adapt and overcome at that that young that young age, so yeah, th definitely. Thanks for sharing that, man. It's um, uh, very important, 
to understand what it needs to be to be successful in your post-military career as you get older. And that's a good place to start. But I like hearing that you had baseball going on in your life for sure. <laughs> that you got that team building knocked out at a young age. Absolutely. You probably, you, you probably even were such a, a, a team player that you dragged those team, those, some of those guys into trouble with you in your, in your, <laughs> your, your young leadership years, right? Well, you know, I mean, I, I can't drag too many people under the bus, but yeah, I mean, uh, some of us got in trouble a lot <laughs> and I, I seem to be at the forefront of the, uh, forefront of the group. <laughs> so did you know anyone that was in the military in your youth or? So, uh, as I grew up, you know, uh, my mother, she was a, she was a army brat. My grandfather, he was in the, in the army for uh, 33 years. He enlisted uh, ground zero. He went in as a private, worked his way up. Uh, not sure of the exact rank that he achieved before he actually crossed over into the commission side. Um, but that's yeah, exactly what he did. He, uh, he worked his way up, crossed over into the commission side, became a pilot and, uh, retired out as a Lieutenant Colonel. And, uh, so, uh, he had tours in World War II, uh, Korea and also Vietnam. He did three back-to-back -to -back tours in Vietnam. Oh, wow. And every time uh, he went back, they would actually give him a psych check and say, Sid, are you serious? Do you really want to go back? I mean, what are you thinking here? Do you know who you're going up against? And so he was just dedicated to his soldiers, and, and that's the only thing that he ever wanted to do was just make sure that they were protected and that they all came home, uh, regardless of what his life uh, expectancy was at that point. So I was, I was a huge, huge mentor and, and role model in my life was my grandfather. How old were you when you really realized the sacrifices that he was making and what he, you know, what his job was? So I really never knew what his job was. Um, he was, uh, he was very to himself. He never really expressed any any kind of um, adventures I'm gonna say that's probably the best uh, best terminology that I can use any of his adventures to us uh, because we were so young um, but I would have to say that probably it was about 10 years old that I really started paying attention and, and understanding okay well you know what's my grandfather actually do and uh, so, I mean, it was, it was kind of a, a crazy turn of events. It, once I realized, okay, you know, that's somebody that I want to emulate and, and somebody that I want to be legitimately, that's somebody that I want to be. Um, that's where my life took a, a crazy turn. You know, I, I grew up really quick. What is probably the most memorable thing that happened to you when you were a child i know in my case it was uh something i i i still love today was the the camaraderie and stuff i had with the kids in the neighborhood man we were we would take whatever we could find build ramps out of them and see how far we could jump our bikes right to, to me still to this day that is something that I'll, I, I still carry and go with because it was literally teaching me saying, Hey, you got to do, you got to make out of life what's available to you. So for you, Brandon, what is probably the most 
memorable thing that happened to you as a child that you still carry on with today? I've actually got quite a few of them, but uh, I mean, the uh, the most important one that I feel that's carried me through uh, not only my teenage years, but also my time in the Marine Corps and even after would be uh, the the morning. Uh, I'm not even going to tell you a date because I don't I don't remember. But uh, the morning that I was actually out there with my grandfather out there in Coronado, um, he had a, a condo out there on the terrace in the Coronado Shores, and it overlooked the beach. And uh, so anyway, he had woken up at uh, 03, and my brother and I, Joe, we were both staying with him, and uh, we had no idea where he was. And we walked out on the terrace and we see a platoon of uh, Navy SEALs running by. And there's my grandfather in the very back. And he would actually get up every morning and he would run with the Navy SEALs every morning. And uh, that morning it was especially memorable because when he was done, that was actually his last lap with them. And he ran up to the ran up to the uh, terrace area, and he came upstairs and and made us breakfast, and then we went down to the beach and we swam all day. But the most memorable part of that is whenever I came up and I posed for a picture with my grandfather, he grabbed me by my ears and pulled him out just like this, and I was <sighs> it was just an incredible picture that stayed with me for I mean uh till now and uh I don't have that picture anymore I wish I did because I would I would actually pull it out and show you but I mean it was just a great picture and and knowing that he knew the separation and the dedication that he still had even after he was in the in the army to still run with the Navy SEALs and actually stay fit and stay stay ready but yet come over there and have such a gentle hand with his grandchildren. It was just incredible. And it was one of those, one of the most memorable things that I take with me and that I will continue with my daughters as well and their children. Gotcha. It's, and it's, see that that's the stuff right there that, you know, granted right now we're in a virtual campfire, but that's the stuff that, you know, if we were, if we're sitting around the physical campfire as we intend to with this show that, you know, those, those are the stories and those are the things that people really get to connect with and stuff. And uh, thanks for sharing that, man. You know, what, what was, what was the time and the point in your life where you knew that, you know what, I'm going to go join the service and, and I'm going to carry on this service and this dedication to our country. Roughly about 2003 late 2003 and uh i was 18 years old and uh at this point in time my brother he's already gone he's already doing his thing in the navy he's you know active duty uh this current moment he's actually out in bremerton washington and uh, he was actually on the uss carl vinson and i'm not sure if if most of you actually know that ship but if you've ever watched behind enemy lines with gene hackman and owen wilson you'll know the ship he was actually on the uh, aircraft carrier. He was one of the green shirts that you see on deck in one of the one of the uh, uh, frames of the film. Um, so anyway, 
he was off doing his thing. And at that point in time, I had already tried to get into the army twice and I backed out both times. I wasn't ready. I knew I wasn't ready. And so uh, my scores on my ASVAB, they weren't the greatest. And I was going in under a, under a window opportunity, um, meaning that I didn't make the cut, but yet they had sympathy. So they were going to open up a, a broad spectrum to say, hey, we're going to let you in if you really want to go. Um, at first, I was trying to join as a 63 Bravo, which is a light-wheeled vehicle mechanic. Uh, I was going to be working on Humvees, you know, anything with a diesel motor. Um, and then also after that, I said, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to do this. So I backed out, um, came back to them probably three or four months later, tried to retake my ASVAB and go from there. I scored two points higher at that point in time. And I had a 33 at that point in time. And uh, they said, okay, well, hey, come on in. You know, welcome me with open arms. What What do you want to do? And I said, in all, all honesty, I have no idea what I want to do. I don't want, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up at this point in time. You know, I'm 18 years old. I've got a full life in front of me. And uh, they asked me, do you know the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier? Yeah, I know that. This is, well, if you go on into the 11 x-ray, you could actually guard that that tomb so man that's awesome so i really started considering it i really started getting ready to go and then all of a sudden my life got turned upside down my grandfather had passed and at that point in time it just it hadn't sunk in yet and um whenever that time frame came about it really hit me and it hit me hard you know that's that's what he actually went in as he went in as an 11 x-ray. And so coming back to that, I really had uh, tribulations that I needed to work out. So I backed out again. I wasn't ready. And it wasn't until 2004 that uh, my brother, he was already out of the Navy. He was back home. He was doing his thing. And we were living in South Carolina at this time. And all of a sudden I said, you know what? It's it's my time. It's I'm, I'm ready. It's time to go. And so I went down to the Marine Corps recruiter and I started talking to them <laughs> and my brother said, what the hell are you doing? And I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my part. Uh, it's, it's my time now. You've had your time. Now it's mine. And so it took me a little bit to actually get, uh, get my score up to where I needed it to be. And I finally got the score that I was, that I was wanting. It wasn't much higher. It was 34. I went up one point, but one point was all I needed. And then uh, the recruiter, he pulled me in. He says, hey, guess what? You passed. Congratulations. Woohoo! Confetti up in the air. Um, as corny as it sounded, it was actually pretty funny. And uh, so at that point in time, he says, okay, now what do you want to do? And he laid three jobs out in front of me. And the one that really appealed to me was 5811, military police. And at that point in time, I said, you know what? That's what I'm going to do. I've always wanted to be a cop. I went through, uh, you know, the the uh, uh, junior academy or what I was able to kind of experience what the um, what the police field was all about. I said, you know what, that's what I want to do. If I can do it in the Marine Corps, then that's what I want to do. And the whole mindset was I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to actually get into the Marine Corps and become a pilot. And so in 
July of 2004, that's when I joined the Marine Corps and uh, went off to boot camp. So at the time when you're like, oh man, I, I want to be a pilot in the Marine Corps, did, did you have any clue at all that really you was going to be hanging out with a bunch of Navy? No, no, not at all. No, it, it was, it was kind of crazy. <laughs> gotcha. So where'd you end up at boot camp? Were you one of the, the West Coast dudes? Were you one of the East Coast guys? How'd that turn? No, thankfully, and I'll, I'll probably catch flack for this, but thankfully I was uh, one, of the, one of the real Marines that actually went through boot camp. I was out there in Paris Island, home of the sand fleas, and yes, I had to bury one and dig one up. And, uh, you know, no, for those West Coasters, you know, I'm sorry that that hill's not too, uh, not too appealing. But uh, that's still all it is. It's just a hill. <laughs> cool so so tell us tell us about the sand fleas man sounds like that's quite a bit of tradition for non-marines <laughs> to hear about <laughs> yes yes it is so craziest part about it is uh they they tell you not to not to touch your face tell you not to pick at your face or anything any anything like that and they have sand pits just for that so you get out there and and uh what they call becoming a sugar cookie so I'm sure Rebecca can attest to this and, and feel where I'm coming from on this angle. But uh, if they tell you that they want you outside in the sand pit and that's where you go and while you're out there doing calisthenics, if a sand flea happens to jump on your face or whatever, you know, don't mess with your face. Unfortunately, I was one of the sorry saps that actually did. I smacked my face and... Man, it was it was like I just killed the uh, drill instructor's best friend. <laughs> and so, when you came out of Chow, Chow Hall, <laughs> and you're standing there, you hope that you're not one of the first ones out because of the sand fleas. But when you come out and you're standing there, and they're just kind of going at you. The drill instructors will come out and they will say, you've had your chow, now let them eat theirs. That is correct, yes. And uh, I was actually 1st Battalion. And uh, so our chow hall was was pretty close to our uh, our barracks or our squad base. And we were on the, uh, I believe, north side of the, of the parade deck. And, well, I mean, we were right there where some of the main uh, steam pipes were, and they were attracted to the heat. And so we had to stand under some of those steam pipes and that's exactly what happened. You know, we, we'd get covered with them and uh, we couldn't do anything about it. But if we did, we had to bury them. And they wanted a, they wanted in retrospect, a, in their mind, a, a six foot hole. And then once you buried them up or buried them, then you'd have to dig them up after saying a prayer. And then you'd have to find the body and you'd have to prove it to the drill instructor that you actually dug a hole, put them in it, then you buried them, said a prayer, and then had to dig them up. So, yeah, that was one of the most challenging parts of, uh, of boot camp is just that that constant mind game and trying to overcome. If the real Marines... We're on the East Coast and got to play with sand fleas. Then um, we had a Marine very early uh, in our episodes by the name of Jeff Gray that 
he said, I was a Hollywood Marine. So I'm going to assume that he was one of the Marines on the West Coast then. So tell, tell me about the hill that the, uh, the Hollywood Marines, not the real Marines, get to uh, experience. Well, um, I'm not sure what kind of language is allowed on here. So we'll just consider this MFR. Okay. So Mount MFR uh, was a hill out there. And I don't even claim to know where it's at. But from every Hollywood Marine that I've heard, it's pretty much straight up and down like this. And so with the pack on their back, trying to walk up it, they're pretty much having to climb it on all fours. And so, you know, at that point in time, it's just one of the most extenuating situations that they've had to go through and for the most part beforehand you know they got to go to a, a Padres baseball game and sit there and eat popcorn and drink sodas in the stands while they were watching uh, the Padres play so I mean if if that's the most challenging thing then sure I'd love to go out there and, and show them how it's really done that's comical comedy <laughs> comedy and for for those parents out there who watch this show because you have your your children in in the armed forces um yeah that's one of the many many traditions that uh, at least the marine corps side of the house they get to experience in boot camp um brandon when when you world through boot camp do you keep in contact with any of your battle your battle buddies from back in the day at all still today no, unfortunately, I've lost lost contact with pretty much every single one of them. Um, there are Marines that I still stay in touch with uh, throughout my tours uh, with my first duty station. As a matter of fact, I live about 45 minutes away from two of them. And, um, you know, just absolutely great Marines, great people. Um, as a matter of fact, last year, I went to the NHRA races with my very good friend Terry Stottlemyre and um, you know we just hung out we hadn't seen each other for years at that point in time and we we just hung out and enjoyed the day and and just reminisced on on the on the deployment and and where we were and what we saw and and the the challenges and and the adversities that we overcame and we couldn't have done it without each other and that was a that was a really big big thing to kind of do and, and get back in touch with and reconnect with uh, some of the guys that that i used to know and used to used to serve with so at the beginning when you came in did you know straight off the bat like hey i'm just going to do my four years and get out no i mean right off right off the bat i knew i wanted to be a lifer i was gonna i was gonna stick it out for the full 20 i mean i wanted to i wanted to walk in my grandfather's footsteps i wanted to go all the way um my brother he only did four years and the, it, it for those that may not know, um, the military is not for everybody. Um, so he knew that it wasn't for him. So he got out. But once I got in and I was able to obtain the Eagle Globe and Anchor, at that moment I knew. I knew that I was going to go the long haul. I wanted to even before that. But that solidified that that want or that dream of going all the way and 
when I came to the opportunity to re-enlist, I took it. I had no hesitation. And it was just, I mean, it was one of the things where when I uh, was given the, the, the packet, I had it finished within a day and turned back in. And uh, they, the career planners, they asked me, they were like, well, how did you get it done so quickly? I know what I want and I know where I want to go. And so that was one of the biggest, uh, biggest aspirations that I had was to stay in. How did your first duty station end up happening? Uh, did you get to pick where you wanted to go or it was like, nope, this is where you're going, dude. Good luck. That's exactly what happened. They, they, it was voluntold to me. Um, so I was out there in Fort Wood, Missouri, going through my MOS training. And uh, I, I actually wanted to go into uh, PMO, which is the Provost Marshal's Office, uh, the garrison side of the MP field. And so there's two different, uh, two different categories of the MP side. So you've got your garrison MPs and you've got your field MPs. Now, the garrison MPs, that's all they do. They, they, guard, the, they guard the base respond to alarms, calls, things of that nature. So they are uniformed police officers for the Marine Corps. Um, carry a badge, black gear, and a nine millimeter sidearm. And you go around, you protect the base to all costs. Now, field MPs, we had a little bit more of a hairier side. So we were the guys that actually went overseas. Uh, we deployed. We uh, we got out there and we got our boots dirty. Uh, not saying that the other guys didn't. It was just a different mindset and different at, uh, a, a different set of. Uh, I guess the best way to say it would be a different polish for a different boot. Would your brother go on the other route? Yes and no. Um, I'm glad the way it happened uh, because I met a, a a lot of great individuals, a lot of great Marines, a lot of outstanding inspirational characters in my life and uh, i wouldn't be where i am now without them so uh, if to say that i could have had the same thing on the other side yeah sure i would have tried it but as of right now i'm, I'm happy the way it turned out and uh, i'm pretty satisfied brandon you have had four deployments and oftentimes they say it's not good to ask about deployments. How do you feel about that? Do you think it's something that we should talk about or do you think it isn't? Uh, it's, it's kind of a tricky tricky thing to say. I'm, I, I can't say um, yes or no for others. Um, me personally, I don't typically talk about my deployments. Um, I mean, some of them I do, the good parts I do. Um, the parts in which training had occurred, uh, yes, um, the bad parts, not really. Um, I try to, I try to put those memories behind me. It's, it's not something that I really appreciate, uh, or not appreciate, but, uh, it's something that I just really don't want to relive, um. At that point in time, I mean, it was it was difficult then. It's been difficult over the years to um, move past, um, especially with the way the situation had actually gone. Um, I wish I, I really wish it was a different uh, different outcome. But uh, but no, uh, typically I don't 
I don't talk about them. I don't think that uh, individuals with certain traumas or traumatic experiences um, need to harbor that. So in that aspect, yes, um, it would be a good thing to talk about. But there again, I mean, it's the velvet dagger. You know, how far do you talk about something that was so traumatic that you just want to block out of, but yet at the same time, if it was that traumatic, you know, what's to say that the smallest little thing will trigger mm-hmm. and, and how do we prevent that? You know, it comes back to the, the 22 uh, service members who take their own lives every day. Now 27, um, it's kind of like, okay, well, how far did somebody push or, or not listen, uh, not listen to the, the signs, the, uh, the, the, the cries for help, you know, how often did somebody turn a deaf ear or who pushed them just over that edge by trying to push too hard to get that information out? Because the more that, we talk about things the better off that we're going to be so is that coming from a professional standpoint and if so how successful has that mentality been for somebody you know yeah sure you can see 10 15 20 patients a day but what good are you really doing for somebody that has been through such a traumatic incident and are you truly listening to that person I think if someone was truly listening and truly willing to help, then yes, opening up and talking about a situation to someone that actually cares is is completely different than somebody that's just saying, oh, well, we need to talk about this. You have an hour. Mm-hmm. So with that, if somebody is truly compassionate about what they do, and those that they are trying to help, then by all means, if you're just going to come out there and and live for the ever-loving dollar and put a tick mark in the box of, hey, this is the guy that I helped today. Huh, what did we talk about again? Well, got it written down in my notes. We'll talk about it next week. So with that, then no. Uh, keep it to yourself. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because I know that there's people who generally, genuinely want to talk Mm -hmm. about different things and they don't know how to approach somebody to bring about a conversation. And then there's other people who want to do exactly what you said and just kind of check the box and say, okay, well, I, I approach the conversation and then kind of just move on. But um, my thought in just things that we've talked about today was how early in your career was your first deployment? And how much you thought that impacted you in your career and your decision to reenlist also. So 
my first deployment, we'll take it back. I joined July of 2004. I got to my first unit in January of 2005. And I was in Iraq in February of 2005. So no sooner did I get out of my MOS school, three weeks later was I already boots on deck in, in Iraq. So as soon as I get to my first unit, um, it was actually a good friend of mine, Drew Metzner and I, we had come from uh, the schoolhouse together to 2nd MP Battalion Bravo Company. And uh, he wanted to be in the field. I wanted to be PMO. But uh, they said, hey, guess what? Little field, you're going to the field and you're going to 2nd MP Battalion with Metzner. Roger. You know, it wasn't really the choice words that I had at the time. But, you know, I mean, hey, <laughs> I signed the contract and I got to do what I got to do. But, uh, so, I mean, there, there, there was no arguing the fact. Once I got there, uh, Gunny Spatar, his name is Sean, Sp Sean Spatar. He's actually a uh, sergeant major now, but uh, great guy from Jersey and had the attitude to boot. And as soon as we walk in, he looks at us and kind of looks us up and down and <laughs> don't unpack devil dogs. It's not going to be long. And, uh, you know, Drew and I looked at each other and it's like, what, the, what, what in the world's going on? And uh, they said, we're leaving in three weeks. Get ready. And that was that was it. Three weeks later, we were in Iraq. And it was insane because as soon as we got there, it was nighttime. We flew in um, to Altacottam, uh, just south of Ramadi Blue Diamond. And it was in the Al Ambar province. And uh, as soon as we got to the tarmac, we uh, we exited the plane and we started walking over to uh, the entrance area. We got in and I had no idea where I was going. I had no idea where I was at. I was just following the guy in front of me. And luckily we had a, a, a huge group of guys that had already been there uh, the year prior. And uh, we got over to the swall huts and the tents and whatnot. And we got in and we basically went to sleep and zero five the next morning we were in uh, briefings and they said, here's where we are. This is what's going down. This is the threat in the area. And at that point in time, it was, I mean, it was a severe shell shock. It's like, okay, where am I at? What am I doing? You know, I, I'm probably going to end up dead in a week. I have no idea what's going on. I'm not trained for this. And, uh, and I say that, because in MOS school, they were training us specifically on how to be PMO. And so we had a specific time frame in which we were supposed to be trained as, as the field side and where we went out into the field and we stayed out there for, you know, two, three weeks or whatnot. But within the first three days of us actually being out there, a freak blizzard had blown through. And it literally shut us down. And the uh, the headshed of our unit or our training de uh, department detachment uh, said, no, we're kinking the, uh, the field trainings. 
And so we came back and we just did extended uh, PMO training. So we had zero knowledge of what we were supposed to do as far as an MP. The only thing that we had was MCT. You know, that's the only thing that we had to fall back on. And for those that don't know what MCT is, it's Marine Combat Training. And so Marine Combat Training is what we go into as soon as we graduate boot camp. We come out of boot camp and do, do our 10 days of boot leave. And then we turn around and we go straight to MCT. And once MCT is finished, we go from, if you're a grunt or an 0311 in the 03 field, you'll go to um, basic infantry school. Or if you're anything else, you go to MCT. And so from there, you learn how to actually do minor combat scenarios and situations just to kind of prep you for things. But I was expecting a, a lot more training. And whenever we were there in Iraq, it was just, I mean, it was insane. It was like, okay, now we're firing on all cylinders, spidey senses going crazy, not knowing what's going on. And then as we start getting into the on-the-job training type deal, we're doing the left seat, right seat with these guys. And all of a sudden, it's it's starting to come together, you know. And so uh, we start seeing what's what's going on. So, I mean, it, it definitely was exciting. It was scary. And, I mean, it was just some of the most fun that I'd ever had. And it, it was all wrapped up in one. It was insane. What was it that that hit when you like, okay, this is it. You know, my, my time in the Marine Corps is done and I start to transition into civilian life. So that didn't come until 2000, I believe it was 2011. Um, I started having some serious issues, staying up with the pack and formation runs. Um, just all of the, all of the things that we had to do in Iraq um as mps you know we were always doing our fives and 25s we're i mean we got into some firefights and things of that nature so i mean there was a lot of times where we were running out into the desert at night we we couldn't see where we were running uh some of the times we we'd fall into a ditch or something or you know we'd go to do a running prone uh maneuver and we would either jump into a ditch or jump into a hole and you know, things of that nature. So, I mean, there was, there was a lot of rough tumble, uh, rough, tough injuries that came about. And again, we never said anything about them uh, just because we didn't want to be labeled as weak. And so over the time from that until roughly about 2011, all that had come back to haunt me. It came back, it snuck up, and it bit me in the backside. And so I started started falling out pretty heavily. Um, staff and CO started taking notice, started asking what was going on. At that point in time, it was it was like, oh well, you're just you're not doing what you're supposed to do. You're getting fat, you're getting weak. And so they started pushing more and more and more, more PT, more strenuous exercises more time in the gym, uh, whatever they could actually do. I mean, I was at this, at this point in time, I was running six miles in boots and utes with a pack. So everything that I'm doing, it's, 
is starting to re-aggravate the injuries that uh, that are already taking place and taking hold and getting worse and worse and worse. And now it's exacerbating them. It took a toll on me. And at that point in time, it was like, hey, you need to go to medical. And it's, you know, swallow your pride, go to medical. Well, I went to medical and they started taking MRIs, x-rays, things of that nature. And they said, okay, we've got a, we've got a real problem here. Um, by 2012, you know, I was, I was already on uh, light duty, light limited duty. And uh, from there, it was, I mean, it was, it was the pipeline out. I didn't want it. Um, the biggest thing that was really holding me back was my knees. Um, so as I run, my patella actually off tracks about an inch to an inch and a half from where it's supposed to be. And so I had MRIs, x-rays, and things of that nature done. And I, I went to the surgeons and I said, hey, is there any way to save my knees? Because I want to continue my career. And they said, well, you have a 50-50 shot of actually making it or getting put out. I said, well, I'm already going down the pipeline anyway. Can we not do the surgery? I'd rather stay in than get out. And they said, well, you know, given your age, you're too young. You're not a surgical candidate. And so, unfortunately, my dreams were crushed at that point. You know, I had to now accept the fact that I was on the way out. There was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I was on the way out. I tried fighting it for about three and a half months. And every time I turned around, it was always a no. And I, that's all I had left was three and a half months. And so at that point in time, it was, it was, it was over and done with. So June 29th was my last day in the, in the Marine Corps, June 29th of 2013. You come up on that point to where, boom, I'm done. And they spent all this money and all this time training you, get you overseas, get you doing your job um, during wartime conflict. What type of emphasis did they put on your life, on your career, on your future, upon your separation? Well, I mean, that's that's kind of hard to say. Um, I don't know what was discussed behind closed doors, but I feel as if um, I was just another number that was being pushed out, uh, making room for somebody else that uh, that they thought was more healthy, um, that could actually run further and farther than I could. Um, so it was it was kind of at that moment where I was I felt let down to be honest with you um i felt as if you know i'd spent all this time i did my four years um i did four years active four years technically uh after that so that was that four years inactive so i gave the marine corps eight years of my life what they asked for me and i did one extra year after that but i chose to reenlist i didn't have to i could have gotten out i chose to stay in and I feel as if they, uh, I guess, turned the blind eye or turned the uh, turned the cold shoulder to me. Uh, they didn't give me the full efforts of keeping me in or, or thinking that I was worth maintaining. 
And so that that really really hurt um, as far as actually uh, wanting to continue my career. So um, I don't have any sour feelings about it. I don't uh, I don't think what uh, what happened on their end was any reflection of me. It took me a little while to actually figure that out. But, uh, you know, I've taken it one step at a time and gotten to where I am now. And so, I mean, I have no regrets at all. And if I could do it over again, I would in a heartbeat. That's good to hear, man. I know a lot of people, once they do separate, it's, uh, it's a lot of anger. It's a lot of frustration because they do. They, they feel exactly what you're talking about. They feel like, hey, I went from being um, an asset you know, to the United States government where there was quite a bit of emphasis put on me and into me. A lot of time, money, effort, et cetera, by a lot of people. And then when you get to that point of separation, it's just like, next. <laughs> they find out who they're going to, and then you're just sitting there, like you're saying, feeling like a number. You know, mm-hmm. and in a lot of cases, a used, abused, physically and emotionally, mentally, et cetera, number. Mm-hmm. And then that that is one of the key contributing factors that leads to when people get out to the infamous, you know, now, as Rebecca had told us, you know, earlier, 27. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, um, it's definitely something that people need to be aware of. And, you know, re- even if it's not our organization who people get involved with for that camaraderie and to be amongst other veterans who can help you through that stage in your life and through that cycle that a lot of vets seem to be in. Um, I just hope that people get involved and get help somewhere, even if it is in another organization, uh, to not go through it alone. Um, that That's a big thing, man. But no, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. That was that was very to me that was that was very touching to hear that type of stuff and you look at uh your life now you know what are you doing currently and then what can we expect from Brandon in the next 5 years well <laughs> 5 year expectation it's kind of uh kind of what uh, what we were talking about before you know the 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 fluidity of things and so I I always claim that uh, everything is always super gummy. You know, it's always flexible. Um, so there's there's no guarantee of where it's going to be, or where I'm going to be in the next five years. But currently, I'm uh, I'm driving for a company called K2 Logistics, and what we do is uh, we have actually um, teamed up with Albertsons, and uh, we deliver groceries to all the Albertsons, Tom Thumb, Randalls, and uh, El Rancho stores within the DFW area, San, uh, excuse me, not San Antonio, but uh, um, Austin, Houston, and uh, Southern Louisiana locations. And so uh, going out delivering food to these stores, I mean, it's it's quite an accomplishment on my end because you know I get to see uh, walking into some of these stores. Hey, you know, I, I brought that. You know, that, that's something that I contributed to. Um, I mean, it's it's not a it's not a huge puzzle piece, but I mean, 
I like to think that it's kind of a corner piece. You know, it's something that uh, that you need in order to maintain a full size puzzle. And so if I'm just a mere corner piece of a puzzle, then, you know, at least I'm something. At least that's what I like to think. So um, in the next five years, my ultimate aspiration, my ultimate goal right now is to um, become a pilot, uh, continue that, uh, continue that dream. And uh, what I'd really like to do is I'd really like to create a 5013C, a nonprofit organization in which uh, I have the opportunity to come out there and create a um, an instance or a uh, an academy, if you will, for uh, veterans who have separated, who have um, been getting the same answer that I've gotten since I've actually gotten out, which is the answer, no, you can't do that. Uh, the reason being is because the VA won't pay for it. And what I'm talking about is aviation. And so going to some of these schools, uh, going to some of these flight schools around the, uh, around the, around the area that you live in, you're always going to get the answer. No. The reason being is because it's not a school that is accredited with a college or associated with college. Now, only some colleges out there, and I know of one in particular, Texas, uh, what is it, Central Texas College, down there in uh, Colleen, they offer the program. However, if you've already used your GI Bill, then you're pretty much out of the, uh, out of the equation as far as going out there and obtaining said instruction. So my goal is to get out there and create this academy, if you will, this, this nonprofit academy organization in order to provide for the veterans that get out that have had this um, events or uh, unfolding of events in this situation and where you're in the same situation as me, I want to provide them the ability to come in and say, hey, I want to learn to fly. I want to get my private pilot's license. And once you actually obtain your private pilot's license, then at that point in time, the VA now looks at it as a career. And with that being said, they can come out and they can actually get a VA backing, a VA funding from the GI Bill. And they can go to schools such as ATP, um, SkyMates, and various others across the nation. Um, so it just depends on what organization is in your area and things of that nature that, that you have to look at. But nine times out of 10, unless it's uh, attributed or, or connected to a, a, a college, you're not going to be able to get into it using the GI Bill. And so that's what I really like to do. And I'm, I'm still steadily continuing to try to get my pilot's license. I've actually been up a few times, but as of right now, I mean, you think about the, the rates that you have to pay, they're almost 180 to $200. And given the election uh, that we've just had, you know, the, the cost of fuel is gonna go up. It's gonna increase considerably. And uh, so, I mean, the projections of that are just astronomical. And now it increases the uh, flight time 
or the, the, the rate of flight time from 180 to 195 to $200 an hour to well beyond that. And so now that, that dream is, is now even further out of reach because all of this you have to come out of pocket with in order to obtain your private license. Not unless you know somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody that has a, a broken down biplane in the backyard. So that is ultimately what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to create a situation in which a, a veteran can come out of the uh, out of the military and say, you know, this is what I want to do. And I want to be able to get them from zero flight hours all the way up until the 60th hour in which they can go down and they can get their FAA check ride. And hopefully at that point in time, pass and get their, their private license. So the biggest thing about it is the VA or the government itself, they consider the private licensures a hobby. And so at that point in time, their hobby doesn't align with the career paths that the government is willing to pay for. And so that's that's one of the biggest reasons of which the government doesn't pay for the, the private licensing, unless you're going through an accredited college, because at that point in time, you're getting a degree. And so that's what they're paying for is the degree, not the hobby, if you will. Kind of funny to think how many wars we have won because of hobbyists, right? Exactly. <laughs> right. How many how many lives are literally in the hands of hobbyists every day as we fly across the nation in commercial jets, right? Yeah. Exactly. No, I I get it, man. Uh I've I've been I've been lucky to be in that one percent club now for quite a while. And uh, and as soon as I hear that keyword that they, it really is the administrators that of those funds. That, yeah, it's a hobby. Yeah, yeah, you think it's a hobby? Look how many times your life has been saved or 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 transported by a hobbyist, right? But uh, mm -hmm. man, I, I appreciate you coming on today, and uh, I really like what I hear from you throughout throughout this whole campfire discussion that we had man um for any parting words that you want to really instill in veterans in, in hopes of inspiration for them uh, as they watch this show and as vets continue to to pull it you know on demand and watch it you know in the future absolutely um so basically i mean never never think that um Anything that you do is um, subpar. Never think that anything that uh, that you have in your mindset or any kind of dream that you have is unattainable. It's it's not the case. You just have to figure out a different avenue of approach. Um, if there's somebody out there that is in it or has done it or knows somebody that is doing it, you know, it's all about networking. Never give up the network. Never stop meeting people. Never stop getting out and actually going for what you believe in and what you dream of. Just because we get a no now doesn't mean we're going to get a no five months, ten months, a year, two years, whatever, down the road. It's just in baby steps, if you will, and where you go from here and how you go 
And it's just like what we were told back before we joined the military. It's not how uh, how hard you get hit, but it's how hard you hit back and keep moving forward and never stop getting back up. You know, the day that you stop getting back up should be the day that you die. And that right there is is something that I firmly believe in, you know, and, and as far as getting out there and getting in touch with other veterans, you know, we're, we're around the corner. I've got three veterans that live in my, uh, my housing community right here. And, uh, you know, me personally, I'm, I'm a part of a, an MC, a motorcycle club. We are a, a military organization, military, uh, motorcycle club. And, uh, I mean, we've, we've got a great brotherhood, a, a great veteran foundation of lawyers. And well, I, I say lawyers, but uh, those that are um, in that field, uh, we've got, uh, we've got Corman, you know, we've, we've got a, a plethora of, of backgrounds in our club that are there for us if we just pick up the phone. And that's, that's something that um, I like to try to get out there and, and try to meet new veterans, meet other people. You know, Joe, you and I met on set of I Got Your Six. Same with Rebecca. You know, that's that's where we both met. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until then that I saw that the amount of veteran support that we've got is just insane. It's so because, true. It's so true. And Brandon, I want to just thank you for sharing that information. A couple things that you've said that I really want to stress for those that are watching, never give up. The second thing is that there are brothers and sisters out there that are ready, able, and willing to help mm -hmm. each other. And I want to thank you so much for being here today to share your story with all of those that are out listening, both uh, on audio and via video. We wanna thank you so much because you're making an impact with everything that you're doing through your motorcycle club, with everything that you're doing by being an essential worker and the dedication that you have by the aspiration that you have with your ability to train through nonprofit status for pilots, for veterans. And I want to thank you for that. My pleasure. Again, guys, thank you for having me on here. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm very, very humbled for, for the invitation. I can't thank you guys enough. Thank you so much. And we want to thank all of you for tuning in to another episode of TVO Campfire. We do appreciate you taking the time to listen to each one of the stories that we bring forth. And we wanna ask that you share those with other veterans, those that are possibly going into the military, any of the branches, hopefully it's the Marine Corps, <clears throat> Joe, or Navy, or Air Force, uh, or Army. But we do want to thank you so much. And um, we ask that you share this with everybody that you know, 
this on social media and all of those that do tune into podcasts and those that take an active role in watching uh, the television shows um, all over social media. So thanks for tuning in. Well, we're veterans, so we spend a lot of time in mental health. Um, Thanks for telling me. That's part of it, right? And uh, so, and we also teach a class called, uh, now it's called Rec for Heroes. It's a guitar class at the VA, uh, Fort Worth VA. And I've been teaching now for now five years, and, and Ron has been helping me teach the disabled vets up there. And um, so I, I got to thinking, you know what? The song is essentially three minutes with your therapist. Right? I mean, it can make you up, make you down, whatever. So I uh, wrote a little bit about it, and Ron is like, yeah, let's finish that sucker. Yeah, so we sit down and It's called Three Minutes of... And we finished it in a thunderstorm, yeah, so... Yeah, Give me a three-minute session with my favorite Haggard song. Warm summer evening and the rumble of a storm.